Hello, welcome back. This has uh, been quite a week as far as the readings go. We we continue in Judges and then go straight into 1 Samuel. We'll go ahead and get started in Judges 15. <clears throat> this is where we see Samson is forbidden to see his wife, who has been given to another Philistine. He's a little bit upset about this. He uses uh, foxes with tails tied and then fire between the foxes and unleashes them in a field to burn down the Philistines' field of wheat and corn and vineyards and olives. And just imagine the visual image there of the foxes all running through the fields with their tails. I don't, I don't know if the foxes' tails actually would catch on fire. I always get a little worried for the foxes in that imagery. Well, the Philistines kill his wife and her father, and then Samson then kills the Philistines. So he's obviously has an anger management issue here. He slays a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass. Now notice here, as his vow is to not touch unclean things, and yet he is using part of a dead animal again. So he's violated his, his um, vow from before. Now, he judged Israel for 20 years. And Samson's life of only calling on God when he needed, but neglecting God otherwise really mirrors Israel's descent. Um, Samson uproots the cities, this is Gaza's gate, and gives it to, and carries it to Hebron. Apparently that's like 40 miles away. You can imagine this is like a really heavy gate. He meets Delilah, whose purpose only seems to be to get his secret of his great strength. After fooling her a few times, he tells her, what the secret is. It's his hair. And so if you cut off his hair, that, that's kind of like Superman and kryptonite right there. And his hair was all that was left now of his Nazarite, Nazarite vow. So they cut off the hair and Philistines rejoices because now they've defeated the great Samson. He calls out to God again and then finally has the strength to rip down the two middle pillars of the structure where he was in prison. Apparently there were a lot of Philistines in this structure. And the Bible says that when he did that, not only did Samson kill himself, but he also killed more Philistines than he had killed his entire life. Then we move on to Judges 17. We see Micah. This is sort of like a little bit of a side story here. He steals from his mother and then confesses and he she blesses him and uses some of what he had stolen and brought back to make a silver idol, as well as an ephod and a teraphim for Mekatsa's priest. Now, here's where there's another instance of the saying that's famous throughout Judges. I don't know how many times it's in there, but it's it, it is in one line summarizes the whole meaning of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in their own eyes. And sometimes when I think about that line, I think about today's world, that it seems like we, we have a lot of that, and we need to cry out to God more. Well, Micah hires his own personal priest. A group of Danites look for land to conquer. They take Micah's idols and priests and priests, the Danites used Micah's plunder to create their own center of worship. So again, here's another example of Israel moving away from what they were instructed to do. 
Now in Judges 19, we go to the story of the Levite who took the concubine. The concubine returned to her father after a few months, and the Levite went to retrieve her. By the time that they had left uh, the fathers, it was, it was too late. They came upon a town waited in the square for hospitality. And in, the, in those days, it, it was common, I guess, to go to the town square and kind of like just wait for someone to say, hey, you can come come live with us. And so the Levite, who's never named in this, by the way, is returning with his concubine that he got, that he retrieved from her father. But his journey, he could not make the journey back home in one day. Well, finally, an older man obliged but and brought him to his house. But while they're there, some other perverted men came to the older man's house demanding sex from the Levite. So these are men wanting to have sex from another man. The old man was like, no, that's absolutely perverted. But hey, you can have my daughter or this concubine instead. Well, eventually, the Levite actually tossed a concubine out the door, just left her out there. And the men raped her and left her for dead. And the next day, the Levite is getting ready to leave. It's almost like he's he's just going about his business and, and, and isn't even thinking about his, his concubine, which is the whole reason for him being there, supposedly his wife. And uh, it it's just, it, there, there's so much of a permeation of the feeling of me, 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 and it's just all about me and, and entitlements. Um, but he was upset. He, the Levite discovered her at the foot of the front door. And this part, I've never fully understand, uh, understood uh, uh, completely where he cut her up into 12 pieces. First of all, it's assumed that she's dead, I would imagine, at this point in time. But he cuts her up into 12 pieces and sells and, and sends each of the pieces to, to each of the uh, uh, one piece to each of the um, the tribes it, it is some sort of a protest or or as a curse or and he's not really acting in his own right mind. I don't think at this point in time. So this is one of those many parts of the Bible that as I read it more and more, I'll probably understand a little bit more. But actually, they cut pieces had the effect of uniting the people of Israel. And they time planned to take action against the people of Gibeah, 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 G-I-B-E-A-H, Gibeah. We'll go with Gibeah. But the Benjamin tribe did not agree to hand over the guilty men. I guess that the Gibeans were, were in the boundaries of the tribe of Benjamin. So now it became Israel against the Benjamites, Benjaminites. So you get now the people against the people. Well, the Benjaminites defeated the Israelis twice, but the third time, the Israelites actually took the ark with them. So you can almost infer that the reason why that they failed the first two times is because they were not letting God lead them. Third time, they were successful, and they destroyed Gibeah. Um. This is the last chapter of Judges, and it just seems to be focused on providing wives for the remaining Benjaminites, but by their own means and not calling on the Lord. So you, you're left with a sense of, of, at the end of Judges, that here was a once devoted people that have now completely fallen away.
So now we turn to Ruth, which is actually a very short book. There's a fam famine in the land, and Naomi and Elimedek travel to Moab. And the idea is that perhaps Moab had better economic conditions. And while they were there, they they had Oprah and Ruth and and also had sons. But Naomi's husband and her sons, they all die. And so Naomi wants to have her 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 daughters return to Judah. This is the best way I can interpret it. Um, because Naomi can no longer provide for them and thinking, well, okay, at least let me send my, my my daughters back and they can, they can find a man to marry. I think that that's the rationale behind it. Um, but while Oprah went, Ruth decided to stay behind with Naomi and Ruth ended up gathering grain in the fields of Boaz after the harvesters, not knowing that Boaz was related to Elimelech. And that's sort of a happy coincidence right there. So Ruth kind of stood out to Boaz and Boaz instructed his workers to watch over her. So he's, he's taking on a kind of a fatherly or a big brother role here. This isn't anything romantic at this time. The grain she collected convinced Naomi that the Lord was still was looking after them. So Naomi ponders the possibility that perhaps maybe it's God's way of showing that Ruth needs to marry Boaz. He's, but he still has not shown any sort of romantic interest. She instructs Ruth on how to dress and to lay at the feet of, of Boaz while Boaz was guarding the grain. Apparently there was, um, because of the situation and the hunger, that, that there, there was the issue of people coming and stealing the food. Boaz have, has Ruth leave early to remove a possibility of any assumption of impropriety. So when he woke up and saw her there, very surprised, he's like, well, you can't be here because people might think the wrong thing. Now, Naomi still owned Limelech's land, but could not sell it because of law. But Boaz could and did buy back at the, the use of the land. So it's not selling the actual land itself, but buying the use of the land. Um, but through this, he also agreed to marry Ruth. And this follows uh, Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. They had a son, Obed, who had Jesse, who was the father of David. This is a story, the, the whole story of Ruth. It's a little bit confusing as far as the, the actual details. But the whole, whole idea is that Naomi never lost faith. And this, this is a story of faith and redemption and how God works his purposes in us, even if one, we don't realize it, and two, we don't deserve the grace, and also even after we have failed and are redeemed. And so the path is now set for the ultimate redeemer, and that's Jesus. Now that moves us into First Samuel. Now, even to me, I've known for a long time that the, the general thought is that Samuel was originally one book and then divided up into two. It kind of makes more narrative sense to be divided up into two, because I believe the second book is more David, the first book is more the story of uh, Samuel and Saul. So remember, at this point in time, still got judges going on, and people in Israel are doing what they feel is right in their own eyes. Now, we meet Hannah, who vows to give back to God a son if one is born to her, and she ends up giving birth to Samuel. And after weaning him, apparently 
took a little while, that would be at age three, gives them to the Lord. Um, Eli's sons were not sacrificing properly. And they were keeping more for themselves. And I think that Eli is like a priest here. And now Samuel is now a child and he begins ministering before the Lord, which is in contrast with Eli's sons. Samuel ministered. The word of the Lord was rare in those days because the people had become corrupt and did what they thought was right in their own eyes. Again, we've seen that statement before. Samuel sleeps at the temple where the ark is. God calls him awake, but Samuel thought that it was Eli calling. So the Lord tells Samuel that he will judge Eli for, for his inequity because Eli did not restrain his sons from doing what was evil. Now, Samuel obviously owes a lot to Eli and is working for Eli. And he, he hesitates in telling Eli because he knows that Eli is not going to be happy with this news. But he ends up um, going and Eli has a intuition. It's like, oh, you got something to tell me. You need to tell me. And so finally, um, um, Samuel does. And now that kind of gave Samuel's a reputation which grew from there as a prophet of the Lord. So Israel um, now battles the Philistines. There's a lot of battling, it seems like, going on. This is in 1 Samuel 4 with the Philistines during this time. And they're defeated by the Philistines. Well, they didn't bring the ark in front of them, so they were doing it on their own, not with the help of, of God. Um, they they get the ark and attack again. Now, at, the, at this point in time, the Philistines are afraid, but they are victorious again, and they take the ark. When Eli, who has been a judge for 40 years now, is 98 years old, heard that the ark was lost, he fell backwards and broke his neck, and he died. And again, it seems that Israel lost because they were using the ark for their purpose, not following God's purpose. So if you think about it, Israel has always, if they put God first, was victorious. But here they battled the Philistine first without God's um, input with the ark um, and lost. And then they're like, wow, you know, we've got this great new tool or this great military tool with the ark. We'll just bring that and we'll be fine. And so they're using God for their purposes as opposed to putting God first to follow what God's purposes are for them. Now, in 1 Samuel 5, the ark is placed next to a statue of the Canaan god Dagon. And the next day, the statue of Dagon had fallen. The following day, I guess they put the statue back up. The statue had fallen and the head and the hands were cut off. So this, this was not too pleasing to the Philistines. Um, god smote them with emeralds, which are which are um, some sort of a boils disease. And the people, Philistines, were like, okay, well, this ark seems to be cursed, so we're going to move it to Gath, and then God smote Gath. There's a lot of use of the word smote. This is, I believe, like killed, destroyed, punished. Uh, then the ark moved to Ekron with the same issues. So by this point in time, the Philistines are like, look, we've had enough of this ark stuff. We're going to return it. And they return it after seven months of having it. 
So now with the ark returned, Samuel asked the people to serve the Lord only, and the people agreed. So maybe we have now a, a switch back from, which of course we saw a lot of that back and forth in Judges. Now Samuel is now judge. And Israel prepares to battle the Philistines again, but now centered on a purpose, and that is following God. The Philistines are defeated, the cities returned, the days of peace ensued. Now we jump ahead significantly because now Samuel's an old man. And he made his sons judges over Israel. But Israel now wanted a king. Samuel warned them that it would not go as they would think it might in their utopian thinking. Kind of a little bit like for like the young people who they're misguided and, and think that communism would be a good thing. It's You're not really looking into this and understanding. It's like if you follow God, that's the best path. Now in... in Nine, we meet Saul, and I, I've referred to him as Tall Saul because apparently he stands head and shoulders above the rest. So he already has the imposing features of a of a leader. And he's Saul's from Benjamin. They've lost their donkeys and decide to seek a man of God to help them find them. Saul and his and his group. The Lord told Samuel that a man from Benjamin would come and he should be appointed king. If the people really want a king, you Choose this person. So Saul meets Samuel. Samuel anoints Saul with oil after realizing that that's following what God wanted him to do. Saul sees signs that Samuel's message was correct. So Saul returns the, with the donkeys. He found the donkeys. But he doesn't discuss any sort of king stuff with uh, with his, his people. Um, then Samuel eventually sends back for Saul. Saul is presented to the people as king. And this moves us to 1 Samuel 11. And here Nabash the Ammonite wished a covenant of servitude from the Jebesh. Tebesh, I think it's Tebesh. Tebesh stalled. Saul heard and fought for the Ammonites to victory. Saul's kingdom is renewed in Gigal and Israel is rejoiced. So Saul was doing quite well in his position as king, and time goes on. Now he's an older man, and the people reaffirmed that he had judged justly. I think Saul needed some affirmation. He reminds the people and their struggle all through the beginning of the Exodus. He notes that Saul, and this is Samuel now, he notes that Saul is their king, but Asking for a king was wicked because God is their king. But Samuel does assure that God will not forsake his people. However, you must serve him with truth and heart and fear him. Now in 13, the Philistines once again became hostile. So Saul had an elite fighting force of 3,000 men assembled, but they found themselves in, in tactical trouble. Saul calls for Samuel for assistance. But while he's waiting for Saul, because he has to wait for seven days, he offers a sacrifice, which was actually Samuel's job. And so this was a serious sin, apparently. And Saul got defensive. He's just like, no, oh, I thought I was doing what was right. Samuel says that Saul's kingdom will come to an end, but God's purposes will continue for Israel. Here we meet 14. We meet Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's son and is more aggressive militarily. He scores a minor military victory, which puts fears into the Philistines, much like when they had the Ark. A larger battle ensues, and Saul is victorious. This chapter is a bit confusing. That's 
kind of no surprise with a lot of the Old Testament, but seems to emphasize that including God in war plans for victory is what you need to do. Now, Saul did have other victorious campaigns, and they talked about that this week. And um, somewhat confusing. A lot of stories there, a lot of meanings behind it. And, and yet another example that the more that you read the Bible, the more you get an understanding of the stories behind it. I do believe that it's a layered effect that you have to constantly build a little bit more. And that's why every year doing the, the reading always introduces a little bit more understanding into the Bible. So thank you for listening to this rather long episode. And I hope you have a great week.